This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. It's finally here and you can get your hands on your own copy of Art Curious. Stories of the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history. You'll love the book, which includes some never-before-shared tales of art history. Stories about America's favorite grandpa of graphic design and how he became radicalized in the 1960s. How two women may have beaten Vasily Kandinsky to being deemed the world's first abstract artists. And a deeper dive into the debate over who created one of the most shocking artworks of all time. Art Curious, Stories of the Unexpected, Slightly Odd, and Strangely Wonderful in Art History, published by Penguin Books, is available right now wherever you buy your books, ebooks, and audiobooks. You can also read more about it and order your copy, and one for a friend, at artcuriousbook.com. That's artcuriousbook.com. The Art Curious Podcast is primarily sponsored by Anchorlight. For more information, please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. For better or for worse, there's that list of big-name artists that everyone in museums clamors for. A list of the folks who will draw in the crowds, the ones that the general public will know, will be familiar with, will want to see. But you can imagine that if your institution doesn't already own a Pablo Picasso cubist masterpiece, for example, that they aren't necessarily easy to come by. There's not a lot of them just lying around, waiting to be snatched up. And even if there were, it likely wouldn't be for pennies on the dollar. Art is just expensive. And even with million-dollar acquisition funds available, how many museums and institutions have that lying around even in the best of times? You've got to be really lucky and in the right place at the right time to nab one of those coveted artworks. This is extremely rare for the vast majority of museums around the world. But when you're living the big life in a super oil-rich country, things are just a bit easier for you, especially when it comes to spending big and nabbing those canvases. Some people think that visual art is dry, boring, lifeless. But the stories behind those paintings, sculptures, drawings, and photographs are weirder, more outrageous, or more fun than you can imagine. This season, season eight, we're exploring examples of some of the most expensive artworks ever sold at auction and beyond, and considering why they garnered so much money, continuing with Paul Cezanne's The Card Players. This is the Art Curious Podcast, exploring the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history. I'm Jennifer Dassel. I have to admit that it is a bit shocking to me that I've made it all the way to season eight of this podcast, almost four and a half years into beginning the show, 
and I've barely talked at all about Paul Cezanne. Now, this show isn't a survey of art history, and the format of exploring the weird little elements or the unexpected parts of art history means that we definitely don't or can't cover everything. Not even close. But still, Cezanne is such a biggie because he's one of those critical people, one of the artists who bridged the gap between Impressionism and Post-Impressionism, a man often claimed as one of the fathers of modern art. And indeed, Pablo Picasso himself admired him so much that he claimed Cezanne as, quote, the father to us all, unquote. Paul Cezanne was born in the beautiful town of Aix-en-Provence in the south of France in 1839. His father, Louis, was a notable banker who founded his own prosperous banking firm, and this financial connection was both a boon and a burden to the young Paul. His father wanted his son to follow in his footsteps and become engaged in banking and investments, but Paul wasn't into that idea. He loved art, of course, and his father didn't. And thus, their relationship remained strained throughout much of their lifetimes. However, Louis Cezanne's success meant that Paul was financially secure and able to pursue options that many of his contemporaries couldn't. And so even though he was very dependent on his family until his father's death in 1886, it was still money, and money was useful. It especially came in handy in 1861, when, at age 22, Paul Cezanne left Aix and relocated to Paris alongside one of his best friends, the writer Émile Zola, who also grew up in Aix-en-Provence. The move to Paris was an important one for both men, but especially for Cezanne, who was a largely self-taught artist. Though he took a handful of drawing classes in Aix when he was growing up, it wasn't until he moved to Paris that his work really took off. Not that he was able to jump into much professional training in Paris, though. He attempted to enroll at the École de Beaux-Arts, but alas, he wasn't admitted. So, with his scrappy self-confidence, he continued teaching himself how to be a painter. He visited the Louvre to study works by favorites like Titian, Rubens, and Michelangelo, and enjoyed exhibitions and connections with Impressionists like Monet and Renoir. The connections with these painters bolstered his confidence further. And he, like many of the artists he knew, made a play for inclusion in the annual exhibition of the Paris Salon. We have spoken many times of the Salon here on the Art Curious podcast, but as a bit of a refresher, remember that up to this point in history, it was almost imperative for an artist to be included in the Salon to make it big as an artist. And the Salon, like Cezanne's own father, was not a fan of Cezanne's artworks. He was rejected for inclusion every year of the 1860s that he attempted an admission, he was included in the famed Salon de Refusé, though, in 1863, the exhibition that showcased work by those artists rejected from the official salon. But that experience rattled Cézanne. The whole show was slammed by many critics, and he took it hard. It was so affecting to him that he began to spend more and more time away from Paris, finding the art world too harsh and demanding there. He enjoyed Provence and the South so much more. A brief move to Lestac, back in the south of France, was an important move that changed Cézanne's work for the better. 
His earlier work from the 1860s was darker, with thick layers of paint, but the brightness and light of the south of France, as well as a friendship with Camille Pizarro, a fellow painter, moved him to develop a brighter palette of paint colors and shorter, smaller brushstrokes. Very impressionist, of course. When he returned to Paris on the rare occasions, he did attempt more and more to show at that salon, but he was only accepted for exhibition there once in 1882. He also shared works in two of the Impressionist exhibitions, but he was different. His works were different. Though he was good friends with many of the Impressionists, his self-isolation away from Paris and lack of formal education meant that he developed his own unique style, different from anyone and anything else. For example, he really wasn't that interested in the transience of light and the moment in the same way that the Impressionists were, all quick and flitting in their renditions. Instead, he sought what he considered to be something true or a permanent quality, attempting to understand a subject's essence and then to realize that essence onto canvas via form, color, and spatial relationships. He would do this in canvases throughout the rest of his life, in both portraits and still lives, landscapes, and in various classically inspired scenes. It nourished him, sustained him, and these pursuits captivated him all the way up until his death in 1906 in Aix-en-Provence at the age of 67. On the surface, that might not seem like much, but the legacy of Paul Cézanne and his work is huge. He liberated color from form and form and color from nature itself, not only inspiring Picasso, as we know from the previous quote, but also Henri Matisse, Alberto Giacometti, and the star of the very first episode of this season, Amadeo Modigliani. In short, he has been credited with paving the way for the emergence of modernism in the 20th century and beyond, allowing for aesthetic undertakings based on these subjective viewpoints rather than a pictorial reality. Coming up next, we dig into Cezanne's mature period and the simple scene of leisure that captivated him for five years and the art market many years later. Stay with us. It's important for us to take time to focus on ourselves, to do something that lifts us up, makes us feel better. One of my favorite ways to do that is to learn with The Great Courses Plus. This isn't just another streaming service, because The Great Courses Plus is a credible source of information with thousands of videos covering hundreds of topics. There are so many rewarding opportunities to learn about anything and everything, like how to use mindfulness to manage stress and deal with anxiety, or how to make your own pasta from a chef at the Culinary Institute of America. You can even find tips on how to train your dog from a pro instructor or learn techniques to become a better singer. And of course, there isn't a lack of wonderful things to learn about art. A course that I love that I always recommend is European Art History, taught by William Kloss. Over a series of 48 lectures, you get to immerse yourself in everything from Gothic cathedrals to the advent of Cubism. And it has been called spellbinding and visually dazzling. It's going to be a sure hit with listeners of the show. And of course, there is so much more. And it's so easy and accessible with the Great Courses Plus app so that you can listen or watch anywhere, anytime in the world. And now the Great Courses Plus has gift subscriptions. 
With the holidays approaching, give a gift of unlimited learning with The Great Courses Plus. Go now to my special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com art. And while you are there, sign up for a 14-day free trial. Try it out for yourself. Don't wait. Head over to thegreatcoursesplus.com art. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com art. This year has challenged businesses across the globe to be their most efficient, which means every hire is critical. Indeed is here to help you finish 2020 strong. Indeed is the number one job site in the world with more total visits than any other job site, according to Comscore. Indeed helps you find quality candidates quickly, so you can focus on hiring the person you need to keep your business going strong. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. And now, Indeed's new way of matching you with candidates instantly delivers a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job criteria that you can contact the moment you sponsor a job, making Indeed the only job site that can move as fast as you do. 73% of online job seekers in the U.S. visit Indeed each month. So it's clear that Indeed can help you get the quality hire you need. That's why more than 3 million businesses worldwide use Indeed for hiring. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com art. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to indeed.com slash art. Offer valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Welcome back to Art Curious. During Paul Cezanne's so-called mature period, when much of his best-known and beloved works were made, he began a series of five paintings in various sizes based on the theme of men playing cards. Constructed over a five-year period from 1890 to 1895, these works, known as the card players, are considered to be highlights of the mature period. They feature peasant men, most likely farmhands or other agricultural workers, some of whom were probably employed on Cezanne's own estate. It appears that Cezanne became fascinated with watching these men in their leisurely pursuits, enjoying the drama inherent in a game of cards. The wins, the losses, the furrowed brows, and the laughter of victory. And there is an art historical precedent to such works. In the 17th century, for example, scenes of game-playing became newly popular, especially in France and in the newly wealthy Dutch Republic, who were equally taken with the subject matter in order to create superb, practically theatrical visual narratives. I'm thinking, for example, of two excellent paintings at the Kimball Art Museum in Fort Worth, Texas. One, The Card Sharps, a circa 1595 canvas by Caravaggio. More on him in episodes number 47 and 55 if you'd like to go back to hear more about this awesome Baroque bad boy. And a French take with Georges de la Tour's The Cheat with the Ace of Cards from around 1630 to 1634. 
Both of these works are psychological tours de force, all about deceit, suspicion, hopes, and the like. We can imagine such a big story in each of them immediately. And it wasn't just Delatour and Caravaggio who were into these types of scenes. The historical precedent can be found also in works by Jean-Baptiste Simeon Chardin and the Lenin brothers, and even Honoré Daumier in France, and the tradition was taken up by contemporaries of Cézanne as well, like Edgar Degas and Gustave Caillebot. Cézanne's card players, though, are totally different. The two men here are both behatted, one wearing a dusky blue jacket and smoking a pipe, the other donning a cream coat, and they're bent over their cards, elbows resting on the table with a burnt orange cloth and a green wine bottle. It's muted, neither flashy nor dramatic, the game not meant as a mirror or magnifying glass for human nature or personal foibles. But it's exactly this quietude that is so lovely about the Cezanne works. Such scenes have been described as human still lives, a frozen moment, a timeless incident of two friends relaxing together. And it could be anywhere. It could be in France in the late 19th century. It could be in Alabama right now. It could be anywhere. And this was part of the appeal to the artist himself, who once noted, quote, Essentially, one should engage with art history, but also modify it and take it in a new direction, if possible, unquote. And then further adding, quote, One does not put oneself in the place of the past. One only adds a new link, unquote. This new link takes a time-worn scene and breaks it down into simple lines, brushy tones, and transforms an everyday scene into a moment of calm, of concentration. It's intimate and friendly, and it meant a lot to the artist, who produced dozens of sketches and other preparatory works, including painted portraits of several farmhands in order to produce his finished works, five in total. In the 20th century, Cezanne's five paintings of the card players were spread out across the world, with four of them entering public collections. The Barnes Foundation, now in Philadelphia, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, the Musée d'Orsay in Paris, and the Courtauld Institute of Art in London, all widely respected museums where visitors of all stripes could enjoy these scenes. The card players as a whole were an enjoyable and important segment of Cezanne's overall artistic output, especially during that mature period of his career. But it wasn't until the middle of the 20th century that the series became valued even more. And fascinatingly, the reason for this increase in popularity is one of the same reasons that the Mona Lisa shot to fame only decades earlier. A big ol' art theft. In 1961, the Musée d'Orsay's version was on tour as part of a traveling exhibition of Cézanne's works. When it hit Cézanne's own hometown of Aix-en-Provence, the card players, alongside seven other Cézanne pieces, was stolen. This story has a happy ending, though, thank goodness, because the paintings were returned only a few months later, most likely after a ransom was paid to ensure their return, although some have disputed this tale the French government chose an image of the card players to promote on a commemorative postage stamp. As the most valuable work stolen from the ex-show, it was the most visible, quote-unquote, victim of the crime, and therefore the one that became the most famous and the most identifiable. 
And, of course, the postage stamp itself meant that the work, and the series of four other paintings in general, received more exposure and therefore grew in popularity. The theft really catapulted the series into public consciousness, and therefore, too, into art history. Now, we've noted that four of the paintings in the Card Players series entered public collections in the 20th century. That means that only one of them was held in a private collection, long understood to mean that it was off limits to most of us normal folks. It seemed like a taunt, a dare, the final piece of the puzzle to make a complete publicly available set. Even the Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, with one of the biggest and most prestigious collections in the world, with obvious clout and name recognition, wasn't able to secure a loan of this final fifth canvas in the 21st century, owned at the time by the Greek shipping bigwig George Umbiricos. The Met, in association with the Courtauld in London, combined forces to showcase the card player series for the first time in history. But Empiricos didn't lend. Empiricos, who died in late 2011, previously hadn't lent his Cezanne to many institutions. And so the work was largely kept away from the public eye throughout his lifetime. You can imagine that the combination of such a high-profile exhibition and its equally high-profile exclusion from said exhibition meant that this fifth card player's canvas was thus super enticing and mysterious. And what that meant was that this increasingly intriguing work of art became super tempting to the wealthiest of potential buyers. Hint, hint, wink, wink. In 2012, an article by Alexandra Pierce surfaced in Vanity Fair magazine, revealing some big, secretive art world news. One potential reason why George Embiricos wouldn't, or indeed couldn't, lend to the court holder the Met prior to his death was that he had been entertaining offers to secretly sell his painting, something which his estate finalized in late 2011 and sold for a head-splitting price of $250 million. That was big news enough, a secret sale that at the time had broken a world record for the sale price of a work of art ever, surpassing the amount that had been paid the year prior, 2011, at auction for a Picasso painting sold at Christie's. In other words, the buyer went way above and beyond in terms of the money spent. I mean, it's not like the work was unimportant. We are talking Cezanne, one of the biggest in post-impressionism, and a known and sought-after series of five exclusive paintings where the others were held in these showy, notable institutions and as the focal point of major exhibitions. This would have been a significant moneymaker in any circumstance. But Alexandra Peer's article makes a great hypothesis about that above and beyond price. As much as it was used to outbid other potential buyers, it was used more to make a big statement about the state of art buying on planet Earth and the folks who now held the market in their hands. If you have been kind enough to get a copy of my book, Art Curious, Stories of the Unexpected, Slightly Odd, and Strangely Wonderful in Art History, and thank you for doing so, then you probably will have noted that I have written a chapter on Salvatore Mundi, the purported Leonardo da Vinci painting that super duper broke the art world for the most money ever dropped on a single work of art when it was sold in 2017. 
that work's exact ownership at the time of the recording of this episode is still a bit murky, and it still hasn't been seen in public since its sale, but it probably belongs now to Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. But it was supposed, for a time, to be headed to the Louvre's Abu Dhabi outpost, one of the newly minted art jewels of the United Arab Emirates. I bring this up to showcase that Salvatore Mundi and the card players have something in common. And that's the part of the world where they now belong. In the past couple of decades, the Middle East has housed the world's biggest players in the art world, as several royal families have tangled to create the next big locale for art and luxury. And one of those big players is the royal family of Qatar, the itsy-bitsy oil-rich nation that really began these early scrambles for cultural one-upmanship. In 2011, the royal family was in the process of building a new museum to house the artworks it had begun to invest in, with the intention of making its capital city, Doha, a must-do on the list of any art world grand tour. Before the Cezanne sale, Cotter had already opened up several high-profile institutions, including the Museum of Islamic Art, the Arab Museum of Modern Art, and the Cotter National Museum, as well as touting its qualities as an intellectual hub, hosting not only the headquarters of Al Jazeera, but also international extension campuses of Georgetown, Texas A&M, and Northwestern University, among others. This was a moment to shine, a moment to lavish funds and make a big statement, especially to its Saudi and UAE neighbors. Cotter's purchase of the Cezanne rivaled them all. It's a shiny story with a dizzying effect on the art market, one that, with our foreknowledge of the hullabaloo over Salvatore Mundi, is still shocking. But there's a darker side to the story, too. In the years that followed the secret 2011 Cezanne sale, Cotter upped its own ante to pay yet another record-breaking amount, this time for a Paul Gauguin work. But around 2015, whispers from within Cotter itself noted that its glittering goals to grab attention and money from elsewhere were done so at the expense of Qatari citizens, who were beholden to their country's extremely conservative beliefs and, in some cases, were neglected, poorly paid, or ignored by their own government. Needless to say, it was all a bad look. And after a mid-2010s crash in the price of crude oil, which provided upwards of 70% of the nation's wealth, Cotter's art-buying spree and self-promotion as the new big kid in the art world stalled. Now, it seems a lot of this is stuck in limbo, and Stuck in the Middle is a world-renowned picture by Paul Cezanne. Next time on Art Curious, it's a contemporary scandal over a modern master. Don't miss it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Art Curious podcast. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by me, Jennifer Dassel, with additional writing and research help by Grace Harlow. Our theme music is by Alex Davis at alexdavismusic.com, and our logo is by Dave Rainey at daverainydesign.com. Audio production services are provided by Kabunki, the silliest name in superb podcasts and video. Let them help you too at kabonki.com. 
The Art Curious Podcast is sponsored primarily by Anchor Light. Anchor Light is a creative space founded with the intent of fostering artists, designers, and craftspeople at varying stages of their development. Home to artist studios, residency opportunities, and exhibition space, Anchor Light encourages mentorship and the cross-pollination of skills among creatives in the triangle. Please visit anchorlightraleigh.com. The Art Curious Podcast is also fiscally sponsored by VAE Raleigh, a 501c3 nonprofit creativity incubator. Remember that we are a fully independent podcast, and so we rely on sponsors, advertising, and donations to keep us going. And you can help us just as much by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more details about our show, including the image mentioned in the episode today, please visit our website, artcuriouspodcast.com. We are also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Art Curious Pod. Check back with us in two weeks when we explore the unexpected, slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in the most expensive works in art history.